episódios da Universidade Lusófona. Conversations around the diversity of Portuguese cinema and the festival's focuses and retrospectives. In this edition, dedicated to new trends, subgenres and ways of making cinema. Hi, I hope you can hear me. Oh, I can hear myself, it's horrible. <laughs> Um, thank you for coming. Uh, I just wondered, actually, I was going to ask first uh, how much you guys know about Wishman, or has anyone here seen any of the films so far? I just want to work out what sort of level we should be talking at. Okay, some big fans. Okay, um, I'm very, yeah, I'm very happy to be here with Peggy and Lisa, who are both coming from quite different directions in terms of their engagement with. Doris's work, um, and I personally hadn't seen that many of Bushman's films before being asked to do this, so it was a great chance to dive into them in these like very beautifully restored versions, thanks in part to Lisa's work. Um, I've been reading a, a bit about sexploitation in general, and I wanted to draw a bit on um, our mutual friend and colleague, Elena Gorfinkel's work um, <laughs> um, in, in introducing Awesh and um, so of Arwish, um, Elena says, in terms of her relationship to Wishman, Arwish's perspicacity, oh, this is actually about the zine that Arwish, um, that Peggy, why am I calling her? Um, this is about the zine that Peggy put together. Do you have a copy that you can show? Oh, it's here. Okay, so, um, yeah, so Elena writes on, on that zine. Um, Arwish's perspicacity in reviving and considering Wishman's significance to film history allows us to recognize these two queens, and here she's talking about Peggy and Doris, as bricoleurs who come cut and are cut from the same cloth. They are montagists and resuscitators of scraps and fragments, shapers of women's most complicated gestures and states of feeling, exploiters of the paradoxes of capitalist patriarchy that itself exploits sensations, bodies, and consumer goods. And Elena on um, Lisa talks about um, something weird, which is the, um, how would you describe oh, it? <laughs> It's the reason I'm doing anything about Doris Wishman. <laughs> okay, so... so <laughs> I, I should have yeah, you wouldn't do that. Something Weird Video was founded in 1990 um, by my late husband, Mike Franey. Um, he passed away in 2014. Um, I met Mike in 1993 because I was a fan of Doris Wishman and Roberta Finley, and I met him at a horror convention, and the rest is history. I mean, I've been involved with Something Weird ever since then, so... Yeah, so uh, just just to finish my um, <laughs> scrappy introduction, um, Elena says of um, something weird that the work of intrepid collectors and enthusiasts, as well as that for non-for-profit non video businesses with a vested interest such as something weird, has immeasurably reconstituted the level, the history of sexploitation at the level of access and what can be watched and rewatched. So I wanted to first start off by asking you both uh, if you remember how you first encountered um, encountered Doris's work and maybe what film um, brought you in to her oeuvre. Well, probably the first Doris Richman film I watched was um, Bad Girls Go to Hell. And I used to live in New York City, um, right near Kim's Video, which was one of, I mean, pretty much if you wanted to get an education in exploitation film, Kim's Video was the place to go, because they had everything. I mean, I, I think at one point, uh, Quentin Tarantino was a clerk there when he was younger and stuff. But um, there was one section of Kim's Video that when I started going there, it was probably like the late 1980s, um, 
it had films that I'd never heard of, and there were these very garish covers on these VHS boxes, and I was like, I, I immediately gravitated to them and didn't know anything about the films, and um, one of them was Bad Girls Go to Hell. And when I found out that a woman directed it, it really just blew my mind, first of all, because you know I was just learning about sexploitation cinema at the time, and I don't know. I just I felt a a kinship with Doris, and at that point I needed to see like as many films that had been on VHS because it was the late '80s and early '90s, um, and there weren't that many. I mean, some of the biggest titles like *Nude on the Moon*, *Bad Girls Go to Hell*, um, *Double Agent um, 73*, and *Deadly Weapons* were out there, but a lot of the minor titles weren't. So I, I, that was pretty much like where I stopped until 1993 when I met Mike at a killer convention and he just started sending me like oh if you like Doris Wishman here's some other ones and you know within a year I was living in Seattle and working for something weird so that's my story I, I too went to Kim's video in the East Village in that same time period and it's 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 amazing that we didn't uh, we weren't friends then is because it's uh it's kind of a small world in New York um, Doris's uh, the covers of Doris's videotapes and, and the, uh, the the titles and the ad campaigns for her movies were were extraordinary really and it, it wasn't they, in, in a way, they were part of the genre of sexploitation films, but it was something she took to a high art. And when she, she basically would come up with an idea, and then she, and, and it would make her come up with the title. So the title came first, like The Immoral Three. Like regardless of how the movie turned out, the title was set, The Immoral Three, or the, all of her films. Um, and then she did, uh, she, you know, she wrote a script and did an ad campaign. That was what she did before she even shot the movies. So she was c completely aware of this marketing, the importance of the marketing, but also it stimulated her imagination to kind of have a whole concept kind of wrapped up in a title. But in the late 80s and early 90s, you know, I went to Kim's video. I was really um, uh, dedicated to Something Weird Video, a really important resource and continues to be. And I think it's important to note, you know, it, the. Not just, um, you know, because those guys are really obsessed with the movies, but I think it's really important to think that a couple of individuals basically saved an incredible amount of film history that was under the radar and really preserved it and kept it going and advertised it and wrote ex extensively about it and now preserving it. I think it's, I mean, I just want to say about something weird that, that is really, really important work. And um, yeah. And really with just a few individuals can really make a big difference. It's like a cliche, but it's, in this case, it's really true. So I got, you know, I was with the crowd. We all like um, collected VHS tapes and um, always on the, uh, on the lookout for something unusual. And so Doris, uh, well, we, uh, you know, I latched onto Doris uh, pretty early on and um, obsessed with her uh, pretty much throughout the 90s. Um, yeah, I wanted to ask about the 90s as um, a mo that moment because I guess this is when you first started working more in a more hands-on way as part of something weird with Doris's work and you also did a retrospective or you showed some of her films at um, 
uh, was it San Francisco and the Roxy um, at the Roxy Cinema? Um, so I was wondering why you think at the 90s, like whether you see that as her first sort of period of recuperation or being brought into circles that were maybe less uh, niche or, or cult, and um, why was this to, more to do with the circulation of VH VHS or audience sensibilities? Like why do you think the 90s might have been that's uh, a time when people were more different audiences were being brought into uh, Doris's work. Well, as far as the '90s, um, a lot of stuff had never come out on home video. I mean, they were considered lost films or rare films or whatever. Um, you got to assume that okay. So with the VHS format, was pretty much like the go-to up until about 1999, and. Um, we were fortunate enough at something weird to be able to, um, well, I'm going to tell you a really funny story now, <laughs> how we even got the Doris Wishman collection. Mike Franey, my husband, had been a bootlegger before starting Something Weird video, and he would take, you know, pre-recorded VHS tapes and sell them out on the, you know, fan uh, market. So there were all these fanzines and there weren't websites back then, but these ways that like anybody who was into genre film, they didn't call it that back then, but that's what we call it now, um, could find out about things. And it ended up that, you know, he just decided, well, you know, didn't, he didn't think anybody was paying any attention. So he's like, I'm going to put these out. And, you know, there's ads you can see from like fanzines from the 90s with like, Bad Girls Go to Hell, um, you know, Double Agent 73, Deadly Weapons. I mean, all these ones that he should not have been selling. Well, he gets a phone call one day from Jimmy Maslin. And he's a guy who lives in um, LA. He bought all of Doris's films from her in the 80s. And he was the one that actually, like, did all of those big box VHS releases that happened in the late 80s, early 90s. And he's like, hey, you're selling my movies and you're a permission. And, you know, Mike was always one to smooth things over. He's like, yeah, and people really love them. He goes, you want to make a licensing deal? And that's how we ended up with, like, the entire Doris Wishman um, collection up to Let Me Die a Woman. Um, we don't have the films um, later than that, although we do sell um, one of her porno movies called Come With Me, My Love as Haunted Pussy. <laughs> so anyway, um, so that was how something weird got into the thing with um, Doris Wishman. But as far as the 90s go, I mean, it, it was probably the most exciting time to be in home video. Um, especially if you were just like, you know, almost like a treasure hunter. Because, I mean, nowadays anybody can just go on Google and be like, I want to watch blah, 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 and they like, find it. I mean, it was like a treasure hunt back then to find films that you hadn't seen before. And I don't know, the enthusiasm and the, the writing that was being done back then, it was more from just like a astonishment point of view as opposed to later where like these films have been out there for a little while and people were starting to recognize them as maybe historically important and you know academics started writing about them and stuff so that's you know that was what I thought of the 90s but I want to hear what Peggy has to say. <laughs> I would have knocked over this. <laughs> well, I hate to make this admission, but I'm going to. Um, I, when I read the reminiscences about like Doris Wishman rediscovery in the early 90s and her uh, life in uh, uh, in Florida, they always refer to me as an academic. 
And I was like kind of insulted actually <laughs> by that. But it's true that I, I sometimes wear that hat. I'm a filmmaker, but I also have taught. I taught for 30 years, and so I do have, you know, kind of a, and I've read some theory now and then. But, um, and I don't think it's a bad thing. It's just like a little bit like weird that, um, that, that all the bands are into doors and, you know, this exploitation, you know, filmmakers that were hanging around Miami and people came to the sex shop and Peggy always the academic. So I was like, okay, whatever. But, you know, when I, the, when I, Immediately, when I saw Doris Wishman films, I was like, there is something really moving here and really unusual. And I recognized her uh, first as a woman, a woman filmmaker, and that there was something unique about the point of view in the movies. I mean, it's kind of absurd, like, um, I don't think uh, most feminists uh, can really get behind the idea that the, the woman who's made the most films is a sexploitation filmmaker named Doris Wishman. And then the person who made maybe the most important films historically was a Nazi, Lenny Riefenstahl. It's like hard for feminists to gonna get behind these two figures. It's not true that she's one of the major women. No, not Doris. Uh, in a, Doris she in the United <laughs> Well, I should never say the most of anything, but we, we could argue this point, maybe. Um, she was very prolific. Maybe Danny has another take on this, but, but I think that it's an interesting conundrum in women's circles that you have a Doris Wishman and you have Lenny Riefenstahl. I think it's just interesting and really odd, and maybe especially the Doris Wishman. But what happened, I think, in the 90s is enough time had gone by that people could sort of read the films in a new way. That, like, e even now, with another 30 years have gone by, and we're still thinking about Doris Wishman. I mean, there's something really interesting about the culture, um, theoretical culture, but also just our, our mores and what we understand about film and how we are viewers that has evolved into a certain place where we can see see Doris Wishman films that maybe people couldn't um, b before in earlier in earlier times. Anyway, maybe you, if, I'm, if I'm wrong, you should say something. Well, I'm just, just, just going to say one more thing about Doris. I don't just to be no. you know, like all historical. <laughs> no, no, that, that's what you're here for. So as, I mean, as far as Doris's work, I mean, she really didn't think that anybody cared about these movies, you know, that when she quote, got rid of them or whatever. And she wasn't really, you know, able to appreciate how much, you know, beloved she was until like the late 90s, early 2000s, before she died, unfortunately, um, when she started doing screenings and there'd be people in the audience and people wanting to meet her. And, you know, she was a, an important person in, you know, genre film fandom. Um, so that, that's one thing that's kind of sad is that a lot of these people posthumously get the attention that they deserved all along, so. Um, yeah, just to your, I guess, okay, so <laughs> I, I agree that we shouldn't really talk about firsts or mosts when it comes to women filmmakers, but um, I will just say that apparently the woman that's directed the most films is um, a pink filmmaker, so Pinku, the Japanese softcore uh, genre, uh, called Hamano Sachi, who's made over 300 films, uh, and I... <laughs> And um, I interviewed her, and she was also very, uh, you know, she, she kind of wondered why I was there. Uh, so there's a, there's a similarity in terms of that. And um, 
I'm, I did see an interview with Doris where someone says, uh, a guy is like, oh, did you, um, as a woman filmmaker, like, do you think that being a woman made any difference? You know, the question that every woman filmmaker gets asked, and she was like, well, I don't think my films look like they're made by women, do you? Um, so I do want to ask, I, would, I do want to sort of pick at what you both said, that, you know, it was the fact that she was a woman filmmaker, some sort of sensibility that may or may not be conscious, um, and I would argue that it probably wasn't conscious on her part. Um, what was that sensibility, uh, if you can pinpoint it or describe it? Well, the first thing that Doris would say was that she was not a woman or a female filmmaker. She was a filmmaker. Okay, that's what she wanted to be known as. She was also not a feminist. And what's interesting is that women who, you know, were from her generation, they associated feminism with, like, you know, no bras and hippie chicks and no, you know, women who don't shave their armpits. I mean, that, that unfortunately was what, you know, a lot of the, that generation thought of feminism. But unconsciously, she made feminist films. I mean, you know, 90% of the time, the protagonist is a female. I mean, her story may not end well, but it's still from a woman's point of view. Um, but she definitely, like, it, what's funny is like, you know, it, when you look at her whole body of work, um, you wonder like what her feelings were about, you know, the, you know her, her gender. And she comes off as very indifferent, you know, to the women in her films. I mean, it's not like you don't feel like she really cares about any of them <laughs> so much. I mean, she tells a story and most end badly. And it's, it's kind of just matter of fact. And, you know, it's been publicly said by Doris Wishman that she was not, well, she didn't really like women. She preferred to hang out with men, and which is unfortunate. She did like Peggy, though. <laughs> so, <laughs> go figure. But anyway, I'll let you talk. <laughs> well, it's really hard to kind of like unpack the, the movies uh, in terms of their womanliness or whatever, because you know you don't want to essentialize anybody in this context. But I, I often, I mean, there's a way the point of view on the females, even with the cruelty of the roughies with all the beating and the sort of like the rape scenes and stuff, there is a way that there's a sympathy. She's sympathetic with the females. That had a lot to do with the point of view. And there's, um, there's a way like with the improvisation, like I think a lot of them are almost like semi-documentaries because it's like everyone's just kind of doing their thing. And there's a really weird trust and equalness between the director and the person on screen, which I think is really interesting. And I've, I've seen a lot of footage. I mean, I kind of know how she did it. Like, if you've seen the films, especially this, well, it's in the earlier films too, but in, in this, in the sort of roughy middle period or whatever, um, they're shot um, silent or out of sync. And then she posts up stuff later. And, and I, you could, you, she's talking to people constantly as the camera's running. And I've had this experience because I've listened to, well, Lisa knows, knows this story better than I. But I have, um, she made a music video with some, uh, a band called The Peaches of Immortality, uh, a Miami band. And um, someone sent me the footage. Um, and she's talking constantly while the camera's rolling. And she's going, okay, more lips. Look, give me, yeah, rub, your, rub your tongue around your lips and give me more boob. Like, push your breasts up. Can you get on the floor? Like, can you just roll over? Now roll over, roll over faster. And she's just constantly directing. 
And when you look, look at the movies to see that kind of stuff, it's really fascinating. Like she has interjected herself into the footage in a way that's really, really subjective. And so it has to be, like I, I think of that, I mean maybe a man does that too, but it makes a man movie. But in this case, the sort of womanliness or femaleness or, or something about this particular woman, female, is imbued in the film in a really deep, subjective way. And I know she was unconscious of it, but she, she's, it's almost like she's in the movie, but she's not. You can talk about her talking. Oh, okay, so I was fortunate enough um, in the last couple of years to come across some raw audio and um, it was actually given to me by her biographer, um, Michael Bowen. And you know, I knew that there was going to be like you know music cues on there for some of the films and this and that. But I had no idea that there was going to be direction. And my my mind was blown. So anyway, there's Doris on audio, barking out orders at her cast, her crew. I mean, it, it's hilarious. I mean, to like, because you actually get like a little window into her directorial style. And we included that, we have this thing here, it's a CD uh, called Best of Doris Wishman. And some of the tracks were just so freaking hilarious that I'm like, those are going to be the bumpers for the trailers and the music cues that are in here because nobody's going to believe hearing her say, I mean, I mean, of course you believe it, but uh, it, it was just fun to hear her in her element. So yeah, she, she was a real character, to say the least. Um, I guess I, I kind of want to ask about the place of violence and rape in her work and how you configure that. I mean, Peggy, uh, I guess that relates very um, directly to some of your work. Um, but also, I, I just, I don't know, I, I remember reading somewhere that um, a lot of the roughies at the period, they would have rape, but that would be the sort of um, denouement or con a conclusion, whereas hers, it's really like the setup for the, for the narrative. Um, so I wonder if you think that maybe some of those unco unconscious elements came in through sort of a rearrangement um, of the narrative, um, of the storytelling, that again, probably wasn't a conscious feminist statement or anything, but the way she included elements that were kind of necessary to the genre, but maybe little, how do you say this, subverted them in some uh, very simplistic um, sequencing way. I was wondering if that struck a chord at all. You know, it's funny, I actually have never thought of it that way. Um, you know, it, it, both she and Roberta Findlay made roughies in the 1960s, and I'm... Do you want to explain what roughies are? Yeah, I'll, I'll give you a mini history of the roughies. Um, around 1964, well, I'll even go back a little further, 1963, um, prior to that, most of the movies that were considered adults-only films um, were either burlesque films, which were from like the late 40s and 50s. Um, in the late 50s, you start to see what's called nudist camp movies, which was a legal way in the United States to be able to like show nudity, but not full frontal. You could show breasts and buttocks um, in, a, in a context in film. And, but there were a lot of rules. Um, the male characters could not be touching the female characters. Um, 
the women had to have some kind of a prop in front of them. Like, you know, see a lot of beach balls <laughs> during this time period, or like, you know, towels walking to the volleyball court or whatever. Um, and that was a thing for a while. And then it evolved into what was called the nudie cuties. And this, you know, um, I'm sure all of you have heard of Russ Meyer. He made the very first nudie movie, um, nudie cutie movie called Mr. The Immoral Mr. Tease. And that kind of set the precedent for what was going to be happening in the early 60s, where they were making these comedic movies with like stark naked women or, you know, very tastefully um, shown gals with, you know, in their birthday suits. Um, but once again, it was in a, a comedic situation with a guy who is a voyeur or he was somehow involved in, in a situation where he got to see naked ladies. Um, and. It, it was just, it, they were goofy. They were, I mean, my, uh, my friend and colleague, Hen, Frank Henlotter, would say, they're the stupidest movies ever made. <laughs> so, um, but that was up until like, you know, the early 1960s. There was a shift, and um, it, it was funny. It's like a lot of people want to take the um, credit for inventing the roughy genre, but um, my mentor, David F. Friedman, says it was him. And he said that the first Ruffy was a movie called Scum of the Earth that was made in 1963 with him and his partner at the time, Herschel Gordon Lewis. And it was a black and white film with like, a, you know, there was a pinup girl um, storyline to it. Um, but there was also like, you know, th these, th there was a girl who was like a nice girl and she gets kind of involved with these bad characters and, you know, she gets roughed up. So he said that he came up, he coined the phrase, the roughies. I don't know if I believe that or not, but you know, all these people like are always saying, I did that. <laughs> anyway, but after that, in, in 1963, Joe Sarno, who I don't know if any of you are familiar with him, but he was a New York director who did these um, beautifully filmed psychosexual films. Um, and one of the first ones that would fall into this roughies category was called Sin You Sinners, followed with um, Sin in the Suburbs. He did that a few years later. Um, there was these two guys, um, John Amaro and Michael Finley, who would go on to make movies with his wife, Roberta Finley. They saw Sarno's films and they were like, we want to make some films like this. And they made something called Body of a Female, which that, and to me, like looking back, and, and, and it's a lost film, so nobody's seen it. The only part of it that's been seen is in clips in a, another Amaro movie called The Lusting Hours, um, which came out in 67 or 68. Um, but it, it reuses a lot of, recycles the footage from Body of a Female. I'm pretty sure that quite a few filmmakers saw those films, and people like Doris, people like um, Joseph B. Mora, who made the Olga's House of Shame, White Slaves of Chinatown, Olga's Girls movies. Um, this kind of film just started to show up in adult theaters. And if you were in that business, and Doris was, and you know, prior to making films, she had been involved in the film distribution business. So she was very savvy, and she paid attention, and she knew it was like good box office, because I mean, as much as everybody wants to think that like, oh, it's art, and it's just, no, it was like to pay the bills in a lot of ways for these people. It's like, pay attention, okay, this is what's going on, it's going to make us some money, this and that. So, um, but in like, the, the years of the Ruffies was around, you know, 1964 to 68, and there is a body of work that is just, I mean, it, it's kind of hard to, it's not very palatable nowadays and problematic. But you have to understand that they were trying to figure out at the time, like, how to make 
adult films and be able to show, you know, boobs and bums, but in a more provocative way. You add violence to the mix and that happens. So, and then, you know, the roughies fizzled out uh, when they changed the obscenity laws in the U.S. Um, around 1969, it was okay to start showing what they called pickles and beavers. Um, so you could show pubic hair, you could show, you know, women's spread eagle, beaver, beaver movies as they called them. Yeah, so, um, but there was like a very special time, in my opinion, I mean, I, mean, I, I hate to say it, it's like, the Ruffies are my favorites, and I'm a woman, and I don't have a problem with them, mainly because the violence in them is so cartoonish. I mean, it's not, I mean, I'm, I'm one of those people, like, if I watch a movie like Saw or Hostel, I mean, I, I'm, I immediately have an aversion to it, and it's like, it's upsetting to me. But these movies are just done in such a silly way that, you know, it just, it is what they are, so. That was a really good history. Um, and it's true that the roughies, the period, 63 to 68 or 69, is not, yeah, it's not yeah, that long. We're still making them in 69. Yeah. There was some people behind the wall. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, Doris went with the trends, you know, because she moved back up to New York and she was making the, the nudist camp movies and she was savvy enough to sort of switch gears there. Um, but I, I think... Um, there was something deeply intuitive with her about the, the violence in the roughies. I think it was, she took to that really well. I mean, she just was describing a problem. She was describing the problem. She didn't have a solution to the problem. And most in, the, in most of her movies, the, the stories of the women end badly. Or there's a really fake, like, I love you, let's get married, I've been waiting for you. And, you know, like there's that kind of false ending of security and happiness that happens in the, um, a couple of her films anyway. But um, it's, the, it's the violence that sort of carries the... Uh, it's an undertow of like an, a dystopic um, sexual relations. And um, to me, she would never say this, but for me, it ha it's kind of a proto-feminist position. She's very, very critical of the social order and the, and the politics around women. You know, uh, poor Meg, whatever her name is in Bad Girls. Um, wait, which? Yeah, Meg is. Um, oh. Yeah. She and she comes to New York, and she's you know she's she really would like to get a job. You know she really wants to support herself and get a job. And she just goes from one bad relationship to another, just kind of gets worse and worse. But she's like, I'm gonna pay my own way, and you know just like she left a loveless marriage, and she's you know just um, having a hard time. Let's put it that way. Um, but I I think. Um, there's a way that, I mean, in that period, you couldn't show, um, you know, you couldn't, sh that's what the violence came in, is because that was what you could show on screen, right? Yeah. Yeah. And that was all you could show. I mean, yeah, that was all you could show. Um, and I've made a couple of things. I made a movie called The Dead Men with Keith Sanborn, who's my partner, who's back there in the corner. And um, in that film, there's some rough and tumble action between the characters and the woman in the movie is naked. They're in a bar and she kind of dances with this guy and then there's a scene, a kind of a weird ritualized sex scene on the, uh, you know, in, in the bar on the floor. And I, I think for me the sort of rough and tumble sexuality, like I didn't want to make a penetration film. It wasn't about that. It wasn't about pornography. But it was about the kind of jostle and tussle and fight between the, between the sexes. So that's just how I, how I portrayed it. And it, it, you might see it as violent, but I, I think of it as more athletic, I guess, in some ways. Um, and I think of it as a, a, 
a, a game, a kind of a, a power relationships between the males and the females. Well, it's funny that you mentioned the rough and tumble thing because one of the things that you'll see in a lot of the mid-60s um, Doris Wishman films is like scenes on the floor, it's like, you know, a passionate embrace ends up on the floor and they're just rolling around and making out and, you know, they don't actually do anything, but it's, it's very strange. It's almost like erotic wrestling or something, so. Yeah. Um, you kind of mentioned, yeah, in the roughies, uh, the sort of, yeah, the, the feminist, well, I think what a lot of women respond to in those films is a sort of idea of a girl leaving a relationship or whatever and coming to the big city and trying to make it for herself. Um, and you were talking earlier, in, when, we, when we met before the, the screening, um, I mean, what is this, no, a Q&A, uh, no, a talk. Um, sorry, it's April Scripts, <laughs> I'm not used to it. <laughs> Um, <laughs> you were talking about New York um, as a location in her films, and obviously her films aren't really about location, but I am interested in this New York that we see, which is often in Central Park, or, you know, a, walk, a woman walking down the sidewalk with her suitcase, and I don't know, I guess a lot of this stuff is really sort of... Um, the, the bits that don't matter necessarily in these films because they're not the bits that were necessarily the components of sexploitation film. They were sort of the A to B of those scenes. But I kind of, this is what I guess we're all interested in is the sort of motifs and the, and the sensibility that she brings that she wasn't really necessarily conscious of or that she wasn't making the films purportedly for. Um, so I was wondering if you guys could talk, could speak a bit to the place of, of New York in those films, if that's something that you, you're interested in or would like to. So there were only a few cities that Doris worked in. Um, the earlier nudist films were mostly shot in Florida. In the mid-60s, she started making films in her hometown in New York. Um, she, she lived in Queens at one point, but she lived in Manhattan when most of those films were made. Um, and then she moved, you know, she, was, she was a snowbird, so she went back and forth between Florida, but she also did some movies in, in uh, Las Vegas. Um, as far as New York goes, she lived on East 48th Street, um, which was near Central Park, it was um, near the UN Plaza buildings, and she used her neighborhood. Um, but the one thing I will say about Doris is she was resourceful. I mean, she was working with small budgets, so she used her own apartments, her friends' apartments, the actors' apartments, and the environment that she was making the films in. So that's part of the reason that, that you see so much of New York. And it's almost like Central Park is a co-star in most of the films. I mean, so many start out with, or like in the middle, there's like really long, hard, serious conversations on park benches a lot in these films, you know? And while they're talking, you'll like, you know, see the characters, and then all of a sudden, like, you watch the camera go to a squirrel running across the thing, or you know, you hear sights and sounds of the park there. Also, the hustle and bustle of city streets, um, and the, you know, one one of the things that we were talking about as far as the, the feminist female aspect is, so many of those early new um, roughies that she did is the story of the the good girl gone bad by no fault of her own, um, mainly because. 
you know, she came to the big city with hopes and dreams and they were quickly dashed for whatever reason. And like so many women have had to do, I mean, I lived in New York City, I don't know, I had to do it. I mean, it was a prostitute or anything, but I did some, you know, I was a go-go dancer, I'll come out and say it. Um, women use their bodies to be able to survive. And that's what the characters in her films do. So um, that, that's where, I mean, New York is an interesting place for that because so many people do go there with aspirations that are instantly dashed. So, well, I, I think you covered. I think you covered the New York. That's good. <laughs> I guess you, you mentioned the the pan to the squirrel, and I'm kind of interested in. <laughs> no, I'm interested in the sort of stylistic elements that either were. Um, I mean, at one point in this interview, she talks about um, what was it? Using some footage just because she need she needed the extra footage to make up the time. Um, so she like reused some of her old footage, or she used some found footage, and obviously these are really interesting things. I guess as an experimental filmmaker or as as people as an audience that isn't necessarily a genre film audience or a, or an audience that knows so much about the landscape that she was working in I think some of the things that I'm really fascinated by are the sort of her, her interest in objects her use of reuse of footage across various films like self-citation I think that's really fascinating and I wondered what the sort of stylistic elements I guess especially Peggy given that um, your impulse towards her is maybe more cinephilic or maybe doesn't come from a place of interest in the genre. I'm wondering what you, yeah, what you think are some of the elements of her idios, her sort of more idiosyncratic um, elements of her work and like what, yeah, <laughs> basically. Yeah, I'll take that. <laughs> uh, well, I thought about that, I thought about that quite a bit. I mean, there is this way that the movies are collages and they're pieced together. Um, Sometimes they could have been more successfully pieced together with just a little bit of attention to, the, to editing and to the kind of shots she was getting. But the fragmentary nature of them I always found kind of fascinating because it's like a, a haiku logic or something where you can kind of skip around, you can fill in the gaps. Like we all know enough about narrative to either believe it or just love that it's weird, you know, that she's not doing a normal narrative and she's not following. It's almost like Doris never really cared for narrative. She just had, she had to hang the, the, the she had to hang the characters on some structure. And so it was like, okay, you're going to go to the city, you're going to get, you know, this is going to happen, but we need a rape scene. So you're going to go to this place and put your suitcase down, there's going to be a rape scene. Or you're going to go see this guy because you, he, you think he murdered your mother, but we need a sex scene here. Okay, so then we'll have a sex scene. But it's, it's the fragmentary nature of them I, I find completely fascinating. And she made, I mean, a number of people did this in the, in, the, uh, in, the sex, in the history of sexploitation where they would get these, they would buy these films from Europe and they weren't racy enough. So they would shoot some sex scenes and cut them in. So there's a film, like she made these movies, I never saw these, The Hot Month of August and Passion Fever. I've never seen either of them. But they were two movies she bought from Greece. And she cut in her own footage into them so they'd be more racy. And it was just like, that is so postmodern or something, or just so amazingly weird to, to think that. And, you know, it's what, um, it's what experimental filmmakers do all the time, or you, you know, with, with different kinds of material. But there's a really interesting um, attitude 
where that the film text itself is so malleable and you can do kind of what you want with it in a really great way and break all the rules. And I think a lot of those guys were just breaking rules all the time and they were making a pretty good living at it. Well, it's funny that you mentioned those Greek films because I mean they're obviously not the most well known of Doris's, but one of the stories was that, and I, I, I'm gonna, I have a little bit of a brain fog right here, but um, I don't know if it was hot month of August or Passion Fever, but literally she had the film reels um, with her from Greece. I mean, I guess they went on vacation there and that was where they found them. Um, and she left the script behind. And this wasn't in the days when you could like fax over a script or um, you know, <laughs> email it to somebody or anything. So she made up her own story based on what the real was. And so we don't even, like, probably isn't even the same story, but she added extra scenes and then she just put her own dialogue and everything else to it. So not even just like, you know, translating it from the original. Oh. Oh, that's it. <laughs> I guess uh, I, I was thinking of this anecdote you told me earlier about um, the sex perils of Paulette, the fact that she said that it was like a Hitchcock film, or oh, Wishman sort of called her, yeah, compared herself to Hitchcock because it was the most psychological of her films. Indecent Desire. Oh, Indecent Desire, sorry, the dull one. Yeah, it's on tonight, it's great, one of my favorites, yeah. Um, but I'm wondering, you know, in terms of this constellation of Doris, like, I read an interview where she was talking about Andy War going to see an Andy Warhol film once and how much she hated it and she wanted her money back. Um, but I guess, <laughs> so I guess maybe it's more uh, easier to talk about those that were influenced um, by Doris. But I'm wondering what sort of, yeah, I don't know, who, who you consider in her, in her constellation um, in terms of who you might see unconscious parallels with or, yeah. <laughs> Well, she would be the first to say that, you know, they were all original ideas. And I mean, she did write her own scripts and the woman had an amazingly fertile imagination because some of the stories, when you see the films, you're like, like a 60 something year old lady made like, you know, with very little sexual experience came up with this idea, which is really pushing the envelope. How do you know she doesn't have much sexual experience? Oh, I d we well, know. we know. <laughs> so Doris was a bit of a prude. Um, but what I was gonna say about her process that way, and, and Michael Bowen, uh, I don't know if any of you have heard of him, but he is her biographer and one of the people that was closest with her at the end of her life. I mean, he had told me quite a few things, and he explained to me her filmmaking process, which was she had a cinematographer, and C. Davis Smith was her go-to guy. I mean, he was the one who made those beautiful images that you see you know, from the mid-60s on. Um, and she stood to the side, so she would be directing the film and you know barking out the orders but she didn't see what was going on behind the camera um she only saw the film footage in the editing room and which is goes to what peggy was saying about it being like experimental films i mean it's very diy where okay i've got all this footage and now i gotta make it into a cohesive story and um th that's what makes the film so interesting because like she it was almost like she frankenstein those movies together in some ways yeah um, 
She wasn't a cinephile. I mean, she didn't really. See, she saw she saw movies, but she wasn't in love with the movies like other directors of the time were. She did tell me that she saw an Andy Warhol film and she hated it. I did hear that story. And a lot of Warhol films played in the art house cinemas, you know, like like her film in the adult cinemas in the '60s. She probably would have seen it in a similar theater that would have shown her film. Um, she liked uh, Herschel Gordon Lewis. He didn't like her. But he didn't like her. <laughs> And I think she liked Radley Metzger. Is that possible? That, that would make sense. Yeah. I mean, not that many people. And she didn't, res you know, she didn't, she just wasn't that kind of person. That's, you know, she was making, um, not outsiders way too strong to say, because she wasn't, but. Um, like guerrilla filmmaking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was kind of outsidery, I guess. Yeah. Um, even though she knew everybody, and, and they all say she had an, a, an address book to, to die for, but um, she was a, she was kind of an outsider even in her world. Like the camera guy, um, C. Davis Smith would say, everybody knew Doris, but no one really knew anything about her. That's what he says in an interview, and uh, I think that was probably true. I mean, the thing to know too is like a lot of the credits on the films are just made up. Like she did everything. So when it says like Don Whitman or something, or like, I don't know, like Louis Silverman, these people didn't really work on the films. It's all Doris. So it's like kind of a one woman operation. She did have the cinematographer and he had an assistant, you know, and she had all the people in the movies, of course, and she did have someone she gives credit to as an editor. But um, they, they kind of um, came out of her in this way that was not, um, within the context of the of the community, a lot of the other filmmakers were friends and worked you know worked together a lot. But she was a bit was a loner, I think. Am I going too far with the loner outsider no, no, thing? No, okay. okay, on the mark. Um, I guess you sort of bring up the the fact of the uh, that she made up all these other roles and um, split her name across things, and that's one of the sort of things that have become quite legendary about her, as well as uh, the fact that no one knows her birthday. There are various little things, like the, the fact that the dates of her films uh, are all wrong, but that's partly to do with the cataloging. Um, and so I'm wondering, yeah, you both met Doris, uh, obviously, and um, I'm wondering, obviously, yeah, there was a lot of like self mythology, like self myth making, um, in terms of the way she interacted or sort of interfaced with the world. <laughs> and so I'm wondering what you, I don't know, whether you sort of, when you interacted with her that first time, I'm thinking particularly of Peggy's encounter with her in the 90s, like were you trying to sort of get to the real Doris or were you interested in this, her way of? playing or what were you expecting and what did you receive um, when you actually met her? Well, I, I had talked to her on the phone quite a few times before I went to Florida. And I had met her through this guy, Tom Smith, who was this local musician who's kind of a really interesting, wacky guy. And he took me to the Pink Pussycat Boutique where she was working when I, when I went down. And um, initially, not, not necessarily in that interview, because she was really taken off guard, but then like the first time we sat together and talked, she told me almost verbatim the same answer she gave that's in the research Incredibly Strange Films uh, interview with her. And I, I was like, I, I was just like, 
she's telling me exactly those same things. She's, she's you know, told a million times. And I said, that's not very fresh. But as I, as I hung out with her and got to know her, she got a, a much more personal and kind of opened up. I learned a lot about her. Not as much as Michael Bone, her biographer, but she, she, would, she would open up. But I was, I was totally fascinated by her fictional sense of self. You know, her, um, the self that she had invented. It was totally fascinating and interesting. And she was in an industry where you had to lie a lot. You know, in the films, um, you know, you, did, you couldn't say you made them or maybe you didn't want to claim them. Um, people lied about their age. They, you know, they, a lot of the women in the movies, probably their relatives didn't know what they did because they were maybe strippers or go-go dancers or something. And I think it was an industry where, you know, people would move around. If you had a bad experience with one director, you just go change your name and go <laughs> work for another person. You know, often pseudonyms in the films. I mean, it's, it's you know, when you, if you have to go back and think about the grindhouse era and how people um, were, the makers themselves and the performers were very vulnerable. And speaking of the actors, um, Doris, you know, when she first started making movies, she was doing it down in Florida at the nudist camps. And um, I don't know how familiar you all are with nudist camps, but there's not a lot of glamorous people there. There's just people who want to be out in the sun naked. Um, so the pinup photographer, Bunny Eager, who used to, um, you know, she did stuff for Playboy, she was extremely well known, she would pepper Doris's films with attractive models, you know, women who were pinup girls or whatever back then. But in the 60s, when she started making movies in New York, she started working with a group of people who almost everybody else in her orbit was working with. So you see these really familiar faces. Um, probably the most prominent is one of our favorites, uh, Darlene Bennett. Um, she's a dark-haired woman, um, very, very sexy, and got a lot of personality. Um, there, there was just a whole slew of them, and they were basically like her stock players for a number of years. Um, and it's not until she switches over to the color movies that she starts working with a new batch of people. So, um, but, it, but in the sexploitation film business in the 1960s in New York, in particular, like th there was like, you know, the go-to people there. And, you know, they played all kinds of different roles in other people's films, like, you know, Barry Mahon was one of her colleagues and, you know, he, he made really dumb movies for the most part. <laughs> he did make a couple of roughies, but I mean, like all of those same girls are, are in his films, but it's a much different context, so. Um, before we turn over to audience questions, I kind of wanted to ask um, about this current period of like recuperation, this new interest in her work. Um, and I wanted to ask a, what you can maybe put that down to? Like, is it an interest in uh, sort of finding women filmmakers from all areas? I know that obviously right now we're in this period of like excitement of, uh, I don't know, rediscovery, which I am really skeptical of. And um, also Doris Wishman is quite interesting because she's always been there, but like we maybe haven't looked for her. Um, she's like a, 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 like a very, very visible, invisible, if that makes sense. Um, but also, I, yeah, so A, I, did, I guess, like, where do you, yeah, um, what do you put this down to, if anything? I know it's a difficult question to answer, but B, um, yeah, that's one for Peggy. And then the other <laughs> one for you, Lisa, is um, how, uh, if you can maybe talk about the institutions that are now interested in her work, and I guess working on the restorations with um, the genre film archive, but also 
the fact that you know that you can now find them on uh, Kino Lorba and Criterion, um, it's a completely different audience. It isn't necessarily a genre audience. And why you think that that might be? Um. I think people are so used to like the formulas of filmmaking that there's most work is really boring. You know, that the same story is recycled and um, remember when Pulp Fiction came out, everyone was all excited because it had a new form and I was, well, whatever, you know, it, okay, they moved around some scenes or something or they intercut, you know, different things. But I, I think Doris conti it continues to be refreshing in a way with all of us cynical, not cynical, but we're, over-educated film viewers. And as far as um, Doris's work on, you know, physical media, I mean, we, like I said, Something Weird released everything on VHS, standard definition in the 90s. Um, around the year 2000, we started a deal with a company called Image Entertainment, and um, that was the new format, DVD, and it was like the first time that Doris's films in particular were out on like consumer DVDs that were in very retail, so I mean like like popular retail stores. I mean in America we had Tower Records, um, Borders, um, all different places where like the average person coming in to like maybe buy a video is like what is this? You know, because there was all kinds of weird stuff there that wasn't there before. Um, and that, and I think it was like in the late 90s, early 2000s that like we definitely heard people talking about her more. I mean, she was still kind of an anomaly before then. Um, and you know, we, those things were in print for 20 years. <laughs> and um, this last couple of years, um, you know, I, I work very, very closely with America Genre Film Archive. They're one of my partners. And um, Jimmy Maslin, who owns those films, is one of my best friends. And I just was like, you know, we, people want these, like, restored versions of these films. And it's time. So um, we started doing the restorations for theatrical about two years ago, right before, well, maybe even more than two years, because it was before COVID. Um, and to have people be able to see these films in I don't know, in, in you know, theaters and in cinemas was huge uh, because they were they were gorgeous. I mean, I, I did a thing at UCLA right before the the pandemic um, where we showed Nude on the Moon and you know I it's funny I actually brought those weird little like Martian antenna things and made out everyone in the audience wear those while they were watching it um, and it just. It was funny to see that Doris's movies, which were considered like bottom of the barrel sexploitation films, being shown at these prestigious places. I mean, being invited to a film festival, you know, all of these types of things. Like, I don't think she ever could have imagined. I mean, she probably did. But I mean, it didn't happen in her lifetime. Um, so what we're doing now with the restorations of the, you know, the films that you're going to see here this week, there's also some more. Um, they're coming out on Blu-ray. And this week we just made an announcement that um, we're doing the films of Doris Wishman, The Twilight Years, which is the color films from 1969 to the mid-70s, um, are just now being released on Blu-ray. The next set, I mean, I'm not supposed to say this, but I'll tell you guys. Um, the next set's going to be the mid-60s ones. We're calling that the Moonlight Years. And then we're doing the nudist films and the nudie cuties. And there's all kinds of really wonderful writing and special features and things that are related to this stuff that I think is going to 
you know, really bring a lot more attention to Doris's work. But I mean, I'll tell you the, the one thing that has helped is the Criterion channel. I mean, when they licensed that stuff for streaming, I mean, we were laughing, like, who would have ever thought? So it's it's a really, I mean, I was been telling everybody, 2022 is the year of Doris Wishman. Yeah. And on that note, uh, does anyone have any questions? I think we have 10 minutes or so. These settings really funny. I feel like we're on a tennis press um, press conference or something at like Roland Garros, <laughs> Wimbledon. So, anyone in the back? <laughs> no, she was waving at her friend. <laughs> Maybe we should talk about the movies that are coming up. Peggy's partner, come on, you have you must have a reserve question. It's Meg Kelty. Thank you. No questions. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I could. Okay. Oh yeah, he has one now. It's kind of a comment more than a question. Oh no. One of the reasons why Doris's work has been sort of taken up by film theory and feminist film theory is that feminism has grown larger and. Uh, it can expand into a larger range of thoughts and it can allow for contradictions like statements which weren't really there in the Keith is saying that um, the reason <laughs> Peggy thinks it's not a bad thought. Uh, <laughs> the reason why it's been taken up by feminist film theory is, this, um, I think this is what I heard, is that it allows for complexities that were you saying that early feminist film theorists weren't interested in all? Were you saying that uh, in terms of contemporary work that was being made along, at, the, at the time that um, Wishman was working? Wh which one were you? Which one were you saying? There wasn't a lot when she was working, but I'm just saying that feminist film theory has expanded yeah. and consolidated itself mm. enough uh, that it can allow for contradictions. It doesn't have to be so narrowly focused mm -hmm. and it can take on uh, more complex kinds of interrogation. Yeah, 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 the idea that feminist film very can take on more complex interrogations now, it's, I think that's definitely true. But I think there's lots of people also uh, speaking to, I don't know, her, we haven't talked about her, her well, her use of uh, queer sexualities of transness which might now obviously her, her trans film uh, let me die a woman is um, I hate the word problematic but this was <laughs> this would be used very problematic um, in many ways but also very empathetic and yeah I don't know it's kind of you've got to assume that back then I mean it's it was quite a thing for her to make that movie but at the same time yeah there wasn't oh, there wasn't um, there wasn't the correct verbiage for things. Like, we didn't know what transgender was. I mean, they keep referring to the characters as transsexual, which is obviously not the case. Um, but once again, I mean, one of the things we didn't talk about was that a lot of Doris's films are, are gimmick-oriented. I mean, that was her thing. She thought of a gimmick, and then she made a film. And came up with a title, made a film. Um, and, I mean, sadly, in that case, it was, you know, okay, nobody's made a film about transgender people. I'm going to 
because that's what the, it, the film is about. Um, the, the, the weird thing, it kind of harkens back to the sex educational films that were made in, especially in our country, in the US, um, during the 40s all the way up until the early 70s, where like um, you would have the situation where you're talking about VD or pregnancy or you know cesarean birth or test tube babies or something, and there would be like a, what was called a square up at the beginning, which was for like educational purposes, so that you could actually talk about something sexual or um, show you know naked people. It's like, well, this is for educational purposes, um, and I think that Let Me Die a Woman kind of falls into that category because one of the things that happens with those other sex ed films is that. You've got actual information, like there's a sex change operation in there, and you've got documentary style filmmaking, but then there's like these fake fictional things inserted into the narrative. And that happened, that was something that was going on for many, many years. And, you know, because obviously you want to entertain as well as educate. But I, I think that she, in that case, I mean, she knew this. You know, she knew who Kroger Bab was. I don't know if any of you do, but he was like this legendary showman in the mid you know, 50, well, you know, he did it from the 40s to like the early 70s, but that was his thing. I mean, he like, you know, would do these films that were um, either sex educational or they, you know, were, were some, some kind of thing that was supposed to teach you something, but with like the stuff all around the like message. So I think that's maybe what she did in this case. Uh, I was telling Lisa the story yesterday, but I, I did a lot of work on this, a lot of research on this woman, Zelda Suplee. And she's the runs the camp in Diary of a Nudist. She's the woman who runs the camp with the sunglasses on and uh, gives the main character her cabin. And Zelda was, um, uh, ran a lot of uh, nudist camps in Florida and was uh, Doris's liaison, if you want to call it that, to, to start making those films there. And uh, she's a, Zelda is another untold story, kind of an amazing, amazing person. And later in her life, she worked with transgender people. And in a situation, I was looking it up, it's called the Eric Erickson Center for Transgender Studies. And this is in the 70s. And she did a newsletter for people uh, who were transgendering. And she was very active in a, um, in, in, in a compassionate way with uh, people that were transitioning. And I don't know this for sure, but, I'm, uh, but it seems there's a missing, maybe Michael would know this, but it seems there's a missing piece of information that would link Doris and to Zelda with Let Me Die a Woman. Because it, it only makes sense that that would be in the connection. And um, it, you know, it's a whole, a, a whole new territory for Doris, and, and it's a really odd transition from nudist camps to transgender advocacy, but that's kind of what happened to this woman, Zelda. Anything else? Anyone? You must have a question. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. No, I think we're good. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Well, they're going to be around, and the um, free. Oh yeah. So we're doing the immoral. We're doing okay. So the movie at seven thirty is the Immoral Three, which is the third installment of the Chesty Morgan um, trilogy without Chesty in it, though. 
So, and then it's followed by both Peggy's and my favorite Doris Wishman film, Indecent Desires, which you must see, so. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. Thank you so much.